Good morning. All right. All right. Thank you for coming back. <laughs> and please join me. Open your Bibles to John chapter 7. <clears throat> Throughout 2020, 2021, and 2022, the years of the pandemic and alarming changes in our country, God's word has been and continues to be our steady anchor. We continually land on the truth that God was in control of everything. He was not shocked or surprised, as we often were and are, at the level of evil brought out into the open and even celebrated. One verse in particular stood out as a signpost for me during this time, and it still does. Proverbs 21.1, the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wills. God is always in control of the nations, the presidents, the prime ministers, the kings, the governors, the mayors, and even the school boards. As chapter 7 opens, we are faced with the same sovereign control, not just over the nations, but over people and events. Throughout our time today, we will see God's sovereign, ta- sovereign timetable <clears throat> does not, cannot, and will not change. God controlled when Christ came. Galatians 4.4 says, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. And he was in complete control of when Christ would die for our sin. Romans 5.6 says, For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. And 1 Timothy 2.6 says, Who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. And God knows and controls the appointed time of Christ's return. Mark 13.33 says, Be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. And in Acts 1, 6 through 7, the disciples asked Christ when he would restore the kingdom of Israel. And his answer was, it is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. From our review last week, we understood that Jesus Christ was sent by God to do his will on his timetable. Chapter 6 ends around the Passover in April. And chapter 7 opens during the Feast of the Booths, also known as the Feast of Tabernacles in October. The lack of details about what happened during those six months can be found in the other Gospels, where we find that Christ traveled through and around Galilee with his disciples and performed miracles of healing, casted out demons, and fed the 4,000. This points us to and reminds us of John's primary purpose in writing this Gospel. It was not to write a detailed biography of Jesus' ministry while on earth, but to present him as God and Messiah. This points us back to the theme of the book, which we've reviewed each time we've approached the study. So turn with me to chapter 20, verse 30 and 31. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. One of the commentaries I used while studying for this morning had a simple title, John, that you might believe. And that is where it starts. 
Matthew, Mark, and Luke fill in the gaps of Jesus' ministry in the six months between chapter 6 and 7. However, most of Jesus' time was spent with his chosen 12 as he discipled them, teaching them about his impending rejection, crucifixion, and resurrection. And in Matthew 7, 17, 1 through 8, we see Christ revealing himself in his divine glory to Peter, James, and John in the transfiguration. Christ spent very little time with big crowds, but the majority of his ministry was spent in discipleship. His time and efforts were primarily devoted to his small core of men who would carry on his ministry after he was gone. In the church today, we see the beautiful result of Jesus' commitment to teach and prepare his disciples. He poured into them, and in Acts, we see the result of that intense discipleship as these men stood up and led the new church. These men, in turn, discipled others in their faith, who in turn discipled others. And it still goes on today. Not only are we discipled by Christ through this study in the book of John, but we can look around and see discipleship relationships all around us, the fruit of Christ's faithfulness to his chosen 12 while he was here on earth. The church was never meant to attract large crowds, but instead, Matthew twenty-eight nineteen, the Great Commission, states our purpose as believers is to go and make disciples. In 2 Timothy 2, 2, Paul instructs Timothy in the same way. And what you have heard from me, in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Discipleship is to be a top priority in the church. Our pastor says the measure of any church's success is not the size of its congregation, but the depth of its discipleship. Now let's go back to chapter 7. Chapter 6 ended with our Lord having just given the bread of life discourse, and as a result, many of his followers left, did not walk with him anymore. The crowd was not interested in a savior who was primarily spiritual, and the drama of that rejection continues into the seventh chapter in verse 1. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Chapter 7 opens with the tragic news of his private rejection in verses 1 through 13. Not even his brothers believed that he was the Messiah. The message and ministry of Jesus was no longer a secret. Many of those around him were skeptical of Jesus. In fact, as this scene depicts, the distrust and rejection had trickled down to those who were closest to him. And this private display of rejection is not just background material, but it's insight into a deeper, re- in a deeper reality of the unfolding story. The more the light shines, the more the darkness is revealed for what it truly is. We saw this in chapter 1, verse 5. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. In the unbelief of Jesus' brothers... We see the hardness and unbelief of human nature. Christ lived a life of holiness. He was harmless and blameless. Yet those who were closest to him and knew him the best because they grew up with him would not believe that he was the Messiah. This was prophesied in chapter 1, verse 11. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. The mere possession of spiritual privileges has never yet made anyone a Christian. 
Seeing Christ's miracles, hearing his teaching, living in his company is not enough to be a believer without the effectual work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts to apply truth and change us. John 6.44 says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. Do you find yourself alone in your family or with coworkers, the only believer? Do you fault yourself that those around you do not see what you have and want to come to Christ because they would rather continue in their worldliness and unbelief? Be encouraged as you look at this verse, for not even his brothers believed in him. There was no fault in either temper, word, or deed in our Lord Jesus Christ, yet even his brothers did not believe him. Our Savior has truly learned by experience how to sympathize with his people who stand alone. Turn to Christ for comfort when you are despised for your faith. He has drunk this bitter cup, and he has passed through this fire. Hebrews 2.18 says, For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Verse 7 gives us a glimpse into why the world hates Christ. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it, that its works are evil. The gospel shows them their sin. If Christ taught abstract doctrines, few would find any fault. However, denounce men, call them to repentance, and to walk consistently with God, and they will find offense, a reason to reject truth. The Jewish leaders could have tolerated his opinions, even his claim to be Messiah, if he did not call out the wickedness in their lives. In verse 12, the people are grumbling about what they hear Christ preach. Here we see the words of old Simeon to Jesus' mother 30 years before come to pass from Luke 2, 34 and 35. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed, so that the thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. What we see here is that there is nothing new under the sun. The division about religion that Jesus brings is highlighted, and we still see it around us today. The hatred for Christ, for Christianity, and for those who follow Christ seems to be more than ever and increasing. But we see it right here in verse 13, when the people were afraid to speak out loud about Christ because of the Jewish leaders. Until Christ returns in judgment, there will be some who hear him and love and believe in him as their savior, and those who hear him and hate him and reject his free gift of salvation. Christ understood this to be the case and expected it. Matthew 10.34 says, Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. While others attack our faith and belief in the Lord Jesus Christ, let us never be ashamed to be among the small number, a remnant, who believe on him, hear his voice, and follow him, and confess him before men. Let us take up our cross with all diligence, We may be hated as was our Savior because of our belief in Christ, and that is a standing witness against them. But in the last day, we will lose nothing and gain a crown of glory that will never fade away. 
And so we see that Jesus' own physical brothers failed to embrace him as their savior. We have the Jews who want to kill the Lord, and now we see his brothers egging him on, urging him to go to the celebration at the risk of his life. But Jesus assures them that my time has not come. He was waiting for that moment, knowing his father would reveal when it was time. And he did very soon afterwards in verse 10, when Christ also goes to Jerusalem in the middle of the feast. Once he arrives, Jesus senses that there's agitation in the crowds. As scripture tells us that they asked, where is he? In verse 11, in the original language, the verb tenses in that verse are continuous. The Jewish leaders, his enemies, are continually asking, where is he? Not because they wanted to hear his teaching, but because they wanted to put him to death. And we see from verse 12 and 13 that even the crowd felt the tension. The intensity was building as Jesus waited for the right moment. One commentator adds to the drama by saying what was coming was possibly, outside of the cross, the most visual, dramatic event of Jesus' life. And so the narrative of chapter 7 moves from a private encounter between Jesus and his unbelieving brothers to outside of Judea to a public encounter with disbelieving Jews at the center of Judea. And we move into the second point of our outline, Jesus' public rejection from verses 14 to 53. More than just a geographical center, this takes place in the center of Jerusalem in the temple, which served as the center of Judaism in the middle of the Feast of Tabernacles. This was a harvest feast and was one of three festivals that required the attendance of every Jewish male who lived within 20 miles of Jerusalem. It was a colorful event, and shelters sprang up in the most unlikely places, on rooftops, in dark alleys, and even in the courts of the temple. And all of the shelters followed the rabbinical building code. The walls were extra thin so that light came through, And the roof had to show enough sky so that the stars could be seen, thus reminding the Jews of how they wandered in the wilderness and how God had provided for them. The people dressed in their Sabbath best and called it the season of gladness. Zechariah called it a symbol of the glorious future of the people of God. And in chapter 14 of his Old Testament book, he wrote of that golden age to come and a future the universal Feast of Tabernacles. It is at this place and time of worship that Jesus, the Word, provides an important response to the growing animosity expressed towards him. Meanwhile, the Jews further reveal their opinion of him, his ministry, and ultimately his father. The increasing hostility to Jesus did not prevent him from obediently following his father's will and why he was sent to earth to bring the good news of the gospel. Instead, Jesus relentlessly sets forth his claims regarding his identity and his mission. During the Feast of Tabernacles, when Jews from all over Israel had migrated to Jerusalem, Jesus once again began to teach. In this section, Jesus sets forth the justification of his ministry and taught with authority as God's son. In these verses, he shows his profound knowledge originated from the Father and could be confirmed by testing. Jesus also showed that his identity as the Son of God is demonstrated by his deeds. 
The people marveled at Jesus' wisdom and knowledge, although he had no formal training. And he offers that same gift of wisdom and knowledge to the people he is speaking to and to us. So many choose to reject Christ because they claim they cannot find the truth. They point to the many discrepancies between Christians on the matters of doctrine and profess to be unable to decide who is right. This becomes their excuse to reject the gospel and live without Christ. God teaches us through his word and through our obedience to his will in verse 17. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking of my own authority. Honest obedience to God's will is one way to obtain clear spiritual knowledge. The key to increased knowledge is faithful, diligent practice of what we know. While we can be so thankful for those who tirelessly study God's word, share their increased knowledge with us through sermons, Bible studies, and commentaries, we must actively do our own reading and studying, allowing the Holy Spirit to work in our hearts. And every woman's grace gives us that opportunity with the lessons that we complete each week. Time in the word with just us, the Holy Spirit, and the word. Some of you are brand new to every woman's grace, new to the practice of studying God's word, and maybe feel like you don't know anything. But be encouraged. Open your Bible. Pray for the Holy Spirit to show you truth and to teach you. And he will. God loves to encourage our efforts with increased understanding. This brings us to a principle that is so familiar to many of us and can be applied to any truth. Obedience brings blessing. Obedience to God's will to study scripture will produce further understanding of his will and his word. What a blessing comes from a pattern of obedience. The small daily choices to get up, be disciplined, to read, and to memorize scripture. The self-exalting spirit of the Jewish leaders was entirely opposed to the mind of Christ, and we see this in verse 18. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory, but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. The Pharisees were not intent on obeying the will of God and thus increasing their wisdom and knowledge. Instead, they covered up this lack of the Holy Spirit's leading by magnifying themselves and their office. Besides the Pharisees, examples abound today of pastors who fall into this category as stories are constantly surfacing of infidelity and compromise in a ministry, and that pastor no longer qualified to lead a flock. But in God's word, we have another example of, a, of the other extreme in the Apostle Paul. Throughout his epistles, we see his humility and zeal for Christ's glory, not his own. He says, I am less than the least of all saints, and I am, an unwor- I am unworthy to be called an apostle. I am the chief of all sinners. And finally, we preach not ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord, and ourselves your servants for Jesus' sake. Does this make, or make you wonder how you can know if a pastor is a false teacher or a real man of God? Use the weighty words of Christ in verse 18. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory. But the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him 
is true, and in him there is no falsehood. And notice carefully what this pastor exalts. Is it behold our church? Behold our activities? Behold the ministry that's going on? Or like John the Baptist, does he proclaim, behold the lamb? This is a pastor after God's own heart. We are so blessed in our church to have pastors, teachers, and elders who follow hard after Christ and desire only to proclaim his name. And it starts with our pastor, who forgets himself in the, pa- in the pulpit and makes the focus Christ as he desires to hide behind the cross. And this trickles down to the other pastors, elders, and us. We live out what we are taught. A perfect example of this, and one that is so close to my heart, is the Shepherds Conference. Thousands of pastors attend from all over the world and are continually amazed at the volunteers, many of you sitting here today, who give of their time to serve them and do so joyfully. We have volunteers cutting fruit and vegetables in the wee hours of the morning, cleaning toilets throughout the week, sweeping up messes, and all the while giving thanks for the opportunity to do these things. This comes from a heart that has been taught taught to exalt and love Christ. These volunteers are blessed in their work, and they're a blessing to those they serve. As we return to the text, let's remember that it focuses on the public's rejection of Christ. The Jewish people's readiness to condemn Christ started back in chapter 5 with the healing that he performed on the Sabbath. The offense of sinning against Moses and his law because he had done a miracle of healing on the Sabbath. He, they failed to understand that the fourth commandment was not meant to prevent works of necessity or mercy. And here in chapter 7, they were deceived by the appearance of evil, and Christ rebukes them for their hypocrisy, using the example of circumcision done on the Sabbath. He knew their hearts, that their seeming commitment to the law was nothing more than a covering for their lack of love for God and desire to follow him. 1 Samuel 6-7 tells us that God knows the heart. He knows our heart and our motives for what we do. Is it to look good and sound knowledgeable in front of others? Or do our hearts truly desire to bring glory to God and to obey his word? We must be careful of any desire to exalt ourselves, bring attention to our service or our knowledge of scripture. In verse 26, the people begin to ask the question, can this be the Christ? Jesus answers their question, reiterating his divine origin and citizenship in verse 28 and 29. So Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple, you know me and you know where I came from, but I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true and him you do not know. I know him because I came from from him and he sent me. While some believed in him at this time in verse 31, the religious leaders became even more angry with him and planned to seize him in verse 32. In these unbelieving Jews' obstinate blindness, we see them denying our Lord's Messiahship, using the argument that when Christ appears, no one will know where he came from. These Jews knew where Jesus came from. They claim he is from Nazareth, as this is where he grew up and is therefore a Galilean. However, as scripture tells us, he was born in Bethlehem of the tribe of Judah, 
And as the genealogies in both Matthew and Luke show us, Mary and Joseph were both from the line of David. These people's ignorance of Jesus' background was without excuse. The Jewish people kept notoriously careful records of pedigrees, genealogies, and family histories. Knowledge of Jesus would not have taken too much research to find out if these people's hearts truly wanted to know. And they would have been familiar with the prophecy from Micah 2, Matthew 2, 5, and as we will see in just a bit, verse 42 of this chapter, all which clearly state that they would know the Messiah because he was born in Bethlehem. In these verses, apparently it was inconvenient to remember this, but rather they were intent on giving themselves excuses to not believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. J.C. Ryle says, men's memories are often sadly dependent on their wills. And Peter addresses man's willful ignorance in 2 Peter 3.5. For they deliberately overlooked this fact that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. We see this even today when unbelievers shut their eyes to the truth, just as blind as the Jews of this time. Peter calls it deliberate, which underscores the spiritual disease so painfully common among men. Men pretend that they do not understand and cannot therefore believe the things that show their need for salvation. An old proverb says, there are none so blind as those who will not see. When one of these comes to the Lord, we see the powerful work of the Holy Spirit changing their hearts and opening their eyes to the truth before them. Jesus then prophesies a dismal end for unbelievers. They will seek him and not be able to find him. Where he is going, they will not be able to follow. Proverbs 1, 28 and 29 says, Then they will call upon me, but I will not answer. They will seek me diligently, but will not find me, because they hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord. And we see this spoken of again by Christ in Matthew 25, 11, and the parable of the foolish virgins who found the door shut and knocked, saying over and over, Lord, Lord, open to us. As awful as it sounds, it is possible by continually resisting the light and warning to sin away our own souls. Let us heed this warning and not follow in the footsteps of the rebellious Jews, never seeking the Lord Jesus as a Savior until it is too late. The door of mercy is still open. The throne of, excuse me, the throne of grace is still waiting for us. Believe while it is called today. Better to have never been born than to hear the Son of God say, where I am, you cannot come. The drama of this narrative is definitely escalating, which makes this just the right moment for Jesus to speak out in verse 37 and 38. It was the final day of the feast, the seventh day, the day the priest would come to the temple, followed by a great throng chanting their psalms. They would come in through the water gate, the trumpets would sound, and the priest would circle the altar seven times in succession, just like the walls of Jericho. And when he came around for the sixth time, he would be joined by another priest carrying the wine, and they would ascend the ramp to the altar. There would be a pause as the priest raised his pitcher 
The crowd would begin to shout to the priest to hold it higher, and he would try to do so. It was considered the height of joy in an Israelite's life if he could see the water being poured onto the altar. It was in that hush and at that very dramatic moment that Jesus cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. We do not serve an ineffective or weak Jesus. Our Lord was in control, and he chose just the right moment. His words were precise and powerful. What a beautiful, powerful, dramatic presentation of astounding spiritual truth. One commentator states that verse 37 and 38 deserve to be printed in letters of gold. They contain one of those wide, full, free invitations to mankind which make the gospel of Christ so clearly the good news of God. We understand this thirst to be a spiritual meaning. Christ used a powerful image, especially for those in the Middle East. They understood what he was saying because they understood what it meant to be thirsty. Jesus cries out to anyone who has thirst, whether it's anxiety of the soul, conviction of sin, desire for forgiveness, or a longing for peace. We saw this in Acts when men's hearts were pricked at the preaching of the gospel by Peter on the day of Pentecost, and thousands were saved. And the Philippian jailer showed his thirst when he cried out to Paul and Silas, What must I do to be saved? How often will we look elsewhere for water to quench the thirst we all have? We look for that quenching in a new car, new clothes, a new experience, anything we can manufacture on our own. So many know they are thirsty and take the wrong measures to satisfy it. Jeremiah 2.13 says, For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. So many believe that the answer to fulfilling their needs their way is just doing their own thing. And yet this thinking does nothing but bring tragedy into their lives. They they have a broken cistern that holds no water. The first step toward heaven is the recognition of our sin, against a holy God and the understanding that we deserve hell. We need God's righteousness. In fact, we should hunger and thirst for it. Matthew 5, 6 says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. And in his mercy and grace, Christ declares that he is the fountain of life, the supplier of our salvation the helper for all our burdens when he says, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. These few but powerful words show how man can have peace with God by trusting him as our mediator and substitute. This happens when we believe. When we come to Christ, we believe on him, and to believe on him is to come. Here Christ presents a simple solution to man's problem of sin. For some, it's too simple, and they want to add to it. But there is no other way to Christ than this, and all the wisdom of the world can never find a flaw in or devise a better way. 
You heard me quote a simple phrase a few minutes ago, obedience brings blessing. It's another set of powerful words, easy to memorize and apply to our lives. And it's a principle that shows up just about everywhere in God's word. And verse 38 is another example. When we come and believe, we have the promise of abundant satisfaction. And not only will we have our spiritual needs satisfied, we will in turn become fountains of blessings to others. And did you catch that word at the beginning of verse 38? Whoever. It takes us back to chapter 3, verse 16, when Christ laid out the gospel message to Nicodemus. The invitation goes out to whoever will come and believe. There is no partiality with God. It doesn't matter who you are, what you are, or what your past involves. Whoever believes will be saved and be given eternal life and drink from the living water in abundance. And once you've taken that step of faith, how are you being a blessing to those around you? The end of verse 38 says, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. How do you encourage other believers? We won't know the answer to that question until judgment day. That day will reveal the amount of blessing that every believer has been as an instrument of doing good to others from the day of our conversion. Some do good while they live by their teaching and serving. Some by their death, like Stephen, or the thief on the cross, or the reformers who were martyred for their faith. And others still do good long after their death in their writings. We think of John Bunyan, Charles Spurgeon, or Elizabeth Elliot. You and I may not be prolific authors, evangelists, or preachers, but in one way or another, believers will be found to be fountains of blessing, whether by words or actions, by doctrine or example, directly or indirectly. What mark are we leaving on those around us? Are they being blessed by the rivers of living water that flow from Christ through us? Obedience brings blessing not only to us, but to those around us. This is also an opportunity to thank God for the encouragement he provides through others in real practical ways. Who has blessed you this week? How can you thank God for his kindness through others? Christ has just extended a beautiful invitation to the crowd to drink of the living water and have blessings of the indwelling Holy Spirit if they would only come and believe. But instead of listening, the people begin to quarrel and grumble about who he really is and where he is from. They showed they do no, they do no scripture. They were familiar with the prophecies of the Old Testament about Christ, yet the eyes of their heart were not opened. Their own Messiah stood before them, and they neither received nor believed nor obeyed him. While religious or biblical knowledge is necessary, we must be careful not to put our faith in our knowledge. It is not enough to know the facts or doctrines of our faith unless our hearts and lives are influenced by what we know. James 2.19 tells us that even the demons know who God is, and they believe and tremble, but they remain evil agents of Satan. Thomas Watson said, Knowledge without repentance will be but a torch to light men's way to hell. Heart knowledge is a gift from God, a work of the Holy Spirit in us. To find out the plague of our own hearts and hate sin, 
to become familiar with the throne of grace and the fountain of Christ's blood, to sit daily at the feet of Jesus and humbly learn from him. This is the highest degree of knowledge which man can attain to while here on earth. While we may be ignorant of Hebrew, Greek, and Latin, we shall be saved. As we near the end of this very full chapter, we see a glimpse of how powerful Christ's gift of teaching was, the power of his word. Officers, <clears throat> the chief priests were, officers of the chief priests were sent to seize Jesus and instead were struck and amazed by what they heard. They were, of course, not likely to be impartial to what they heard from Christ, yet they reported, no one has ever spoken like this man. We saw this kind of power when he cleansed the temple back in chapter 2. No one hesitated to do what he said when it came to clearing out God's house so it could be used for what it was intended for, a place to worship God. And in Matthew 7, 29, we see that he taught as one having authority and not as the scribes. These officers were not used to hearing this kind of teaching, and they understood that it was different. They saw a combination of power and simplicity, of courage and wisdom, of faithfulness and tenderness. For this reason, they could not obey the command of their superiors and seize Christ and came back to the Pharisees empty-handed. Of course, we can hearken back to the beginning of this chapter and understand the other reason the officers did not take him. We've seen throughout this chapter that God was in control of the timeline, not man. In verse 6, it says it was not yet his time. In verse 8, his time had not yet come. And in verse 30, his hour had not yet come. Everything was going according to God's timetable, which, against which man had no power to overcome. They experienced an invisible restraint from above. Ladies, there is great comfort in great peace in this truth. We can understand that all of our Lord's sufferings were voluntary of his own free will. He did not go to the cross because he couldn't help it. He did not die because he could not prevent his death. Neither Jew or Gentile, Pharisee or Sadducee, Annas or Caiaphas, Herod or Pontius Pilate could have injured Christ without the power to do so given him from above. All this was done under control and by permission. The passion of Christ could not begin until the very hour that God had appointed. What a comfort in time of suffering or need. We must never forget we live in a world where God overrules all times, news, and events, and where nothing can happen out of God's permission. The very hairs of our heads are numbered. Sorrow and sickness, poverty and persecution can never touch us unless God sees fit. Psalm 31.15 says, My times are in your hand. The hand that guides and governs all things here below makes no mistakes. In these last verses of the chapter, we again see our old friend Nicodemus. Remember, 18 months earlier in chapter 3, he came to Jesus under the cover of darkness. He was attracted to what he saw in Christ and wanted what he had. He wanted to add Christ to his religiosity and thought that somehow that would make him complete. We found out he did not really know the scriptures, although he was a religious leader of the Jews, and he could not understand the concept of being born again 
and receiving new life. And it was to Nicodemus that Jesus offered that free gift of the gospel in verse 16. Nicodemus left that night still mired in his sin and pride, refusing to acknowledge that Jesus was God, the Messiah his people had been waiting for. But here we see him again, but not as we would expect to see him. He agreed with the report of the officers regarding Jesus' teaching. Never underestimate the power of the gospel and how slowly and gradually the work of grace goes on in some hearts. Nicodemus stands up before the council full of Christ's enemies and pleaded, although mildly, that Christ deserved to be treated fairly. He dared not come to Christ in the light of day the first time, and his knowledge was obviously lacking. But 18 months later, he dares to stand up for Christ. He did nothing more than ask a question. However, we see that the Holy Spirit has been working in his heart. And we will hear more from Nicodemus as his new faith grows and trust increases when he joins Joseph of Arimathea with the honor of burying our Savior's body after his death on the cross, even when the chosen disciples had forsaken Christ and fled. Let us learn from this testimony of Nicodemus. We cannot put God or the Holy Spirit in a box, expect him to work the same all the time. While all are led to the same Savior, not all are led in the same way. The work of the Spirit does not always go forward in the same speed in the hearts of men. In some cases, it may go forward very slowly indeed, and yet may be real and true. Not all who are saved will come out boldly, take up the cross, and confess Christ in the day of their salvation. But God is directing their growth and sanctification according to his perfect timetable and his purpose. The faith in our hearts may be small and may grow slowly, as in the case of Nicodemus, but by God's grace and mercy, it grows. It's better to move slowly in our faith than to stand still in sin and in the world. When our Lord came to Jerusalem for the Feast of Tabernacles in verse 2, only about six months remained before he would return to Jerusalem the following spring for Passover and his crucifixion. From this point forward, now more than ever, Jesus would walk in the looming shadow of the cross. In chapter 7, we continue to follow the thread of John's theme of his gospel that we saw last week in our review. Jesus' emphasis on discipleship and further proclaiming and proving that Christ is God. And we saw amazing amazing truths about Jesus' character, his obedience to God's will, no matter what the people or the Jewish leader's response was. We saw the power of his word, his sovereignty, and his abundant mercy and grace in his beautiful invitation to drink of the living water. Ladies, let us be faithful to be obedient to what we know from God's word. We don't have to be Bible scholars or have all the right answers right away, But God will bless our obedience and diligence in his word with further knowledge and understanding as we bless those around us with rivers of living water flowing through us. Obedience brings blessing. God is in control of all things, both in John 7 and today. He is turning the hearts of kings wherever he wills, and his plan cannot be thwarted. Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, thank you for your word and for this time to study and learn more about you from it. Go with us now, and we ask that you bless our time in our groups as we share what the Holy Spirit taught each of us from our study of John 7 this week. And it's in your son's name that we pray. Amen.